friends. Welcome back to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast. So one of the topics that we really explore, kind of the topic we explore in episode after episode in all these different avenues is this question of how did we get where we are in our current society? Um, and how can we maybe pull in some of the past, some of the wisdom from previous eras and weave that into what we're doing today? And so we often talk about that in the realms of food, farming, agriculture, parenting, um, how we move through life. But today we're taking it into a slightly different realm. And I'm actually really, really excited for this one because we haven't touched on it really, I don't think ever here on the podcast. And that is around the topic of homes and construction and building. And so I have the expert with me here today. I'm so excited to chat with Mr. Brent Hull. He is the owner and founder of Hull Millwork. He is passionate about beautiful architecture and the art of timeless building. So welcome, Brent. I'm so thrilled to have you with me today. Thank you. Uh, excited to be here. Yeah. So could you give us just a little bit of background in case someone listening isn't familiar with you and your work? Okay. I, uh, about 30 years ago, I went to a school for historic preservation in Boston called the North Bennett Street School, um, kind of an old world trade school. Uh, they have book binding, uh, you know, uh, traditional furniture making and a, and a program called Preservation Carpentry, uh, where we literally, you know, those hand planes behind me, we literally learned to get them working again uh, and learn to build with hand tools uh, in a preservation sense, understanding, you know, how things were built 250 years ago versus how they're built today. And, uh, that, you know, I went, came back to Texas. I'm from Texas. My wife's from Fort Worth. I was from Dallas. And, um, we started this company in my brother's garage and I, I do home building now, uh, and, and construction and restoration. And we do architectural millwork, um, trying to really the theme that's infused my business is that idea of uh, um, building new again uh, using old world methods, using using the past to inform how we should build build better today. Mm. That's right up my alley. You're speaking my language um, again. I'm not necessarily in the home building world, but I'm in that world in food and and gardening and so many others. So I love it. Um, I guess I kind of want to start with a big picture question. I know this is a really big question, so just maybe give us the the bird's eye view, the condensed version. But, you know, we, we've renovated a few homes and a few buildings in our area, nothing to the extent that you do. I love historic places. I love old buildings what, much more than I love new ones. Um, but one thing I'm just repeatedly struck by is how much architecture has changed, how much styles have changed over the years. And I wonder if you could kind of give us a map of when that really started to shift. And also, I mean, I'm, maybe this sounds, I, I don't want to, maybe this sounds bad, but when did we stop caring as a culture about the aesthetics as much? Because it feels like a lot of the previous eras were so much more, there was so much more pride and craftsmanship. And now it's just like, get it done, do it fast. And so when did that start to shift? That's a huge question, um, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Uh, no, 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 it's good. I mean, uh, I'm oftentimes comparing building today to fast food, to fast fashion, right? To a lot of the things that are, uh, you know, microwave generation type of things. And there's a lot of similarities between how food is processed and how homes are processed. And so uh, the quick answer, and it's not a quick answer, but it's a, it's the abbreviated answer. 
Um, and I go to it in my book, Timeless House in an Instant Age, um, is that after World War, after uh, the Great Depression, um, from you know late late nineteen twenties, uh, and then going through the thirties, and then we entered World War II. There's about a twenty year period uh, from you know nineteen twenty six twenty seven when the peak of the home building was in the twenties, um, Great Depression, and then you know end of World War II, which is forty five guys are coming back in forty six. About a twenty year period of time. Uh, there was a housing crisis and, uh, you know, the, the industry was looking, there are studies that were done. There's one called the American housing study, um, that was done in like, uh, in the late thirties, early forties, wondering how we could build houses. Like, you know, they build cars. Um, why can't houses be built, you know, quick, fast, efficient, still very, uh, well-built and beautiful, but, but why can't we build houses like cars? And, and in fact, that question still haunts the industry. <laughs> um, that they, you know, manufactured housing has turned into cheap housing and they, they would love to, the industry would love to learn how to build faster, better. Uh, they haven't figured it out. And so, uh, essentially what happens is, is, is that 20 year period of time changed home building and, you get out of World War II and there's an incredible housing shortage. And, you know, there are, uh, if you go back and look at the papers and look at the things the people were living in boxcars, they were living in silos, they were living in barns, they were doubling up. Um, and so no one had housing. And so a lot of the industry was trying to figure out housing. And one guy in particular, you know, did it better than everybody else. That was William Levitt with the rise of Levittown. Now, if you're not familiar with Levittown, Levittown uh, is basically when the average house size was 12 to 1400 square feet in 1940 uh, and 45, he was building houses that were six and 800 square feet. No basements, uh, very small and efficient, um, but they sold like hotcakes. I mean, it's just, he just, he basically taught and our industry, our home building industry, how to build cheap and fast. And those lessons that he taught builders over a 20 year period from 1950 to 1970 led to the McMansion era in the eighties, when you have basically a McMansion is a track house with more moldings and granite countertops. Yes. You know, it's, it's a, it's a big, ugly, fast, cheap house. Um, and, you know, builders, you know, in the process, the designer got pushed out of the process. The um, and, and so the builder controls design. And so you basically have a guy who cares a great deal about efficiency or a girl, whatever you want to say. But the person in charge of design has basically taken design over here. I, I have a statement I repeat quite often. Um, and this, this is the problem with home building, why houses are ugly today. And yes, I think houses are ugly today. Yeah. Um, there is no style. They're, they, they're assembled from mismatched parts. And um, the, uh, that the home builder thinks that because his houses sell, they're well-designed. And the homeowner thinks that because someone built it, somebody must have designed it. And so the homeowner doesn't get it and assumes, oh, well, look, you know, someone designed this. No, someone assembled it. Okay. And, you know, the, the build 
relationship that happens with clients, you know, they'll say, uh, you know, go pick your brick, go pick your windows, go pick your hardware. And the homeowner's left to go to the hardware store and they look around and there's a wall of hardware. And how do you make a your decision? Well, you know, our budget says we, we can spend, you know, $4 a piece on a knob and they look on the wall, they don't know what to pick. And then they go, well, that one's $4. Okay, let's do that. They do the same thing with windows and brick and flooring. And all of a sudden you have a house that doesn't look like anything. There's no philosophy. There's no design ideal. And so our houses are ugly. So that's the, how long did I do that? that five good. minute, the five minute reason why houses are ugly. Yeah. I was scared to say houses are ugly because I'm like, maybe he's going to correct me, but I'm glad you said it. Cause I do think houses, are, a lot of houses are ugly. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's just like almost they're uh, offensive to just our inner sense of what is what is beautiful, what we know to be beautiful. The one thing that really bothers me even more than anything is when you go into cer- certain parts of town, like the commercial buildings that were built during the 70s, they look like prisons, like they're square and they're concrete. And I'm like, was that w- was that supposed to be like modern and cutting edge at the time? Like what was what was the reasoning behind that? Was it completely just cost of materials? Well, there's an interesting book called uh, The Geography of Nowhere, which speaks to your your comment. And his his point is, is that you drive up to a strip mall today and you could be in San Diego, you could be in New York, you could be in Dallas, you could be, you know, anywhere in the country because they all look the same. And so, uh, you know, um if you study modernism and and kind of what why our buildings look like they are, there's a bunch of interesting kind of anecdotal reasons why you know modernism took over as kind of the predominant style in uh, uh, in America and in the world. Um, part of it was uh, the rebuilding after World War II in Europe and uh, the uh, need for you know, building cheap and fast. Um, and you know, this, you know, that, that driving things, I mean, the, the European hinges that go into our cabinets today, um, and that have replaced real hardware and things like that, that we used to do, um, was a product, just a small piece of the product of the European let's build cheap and fast, uh, ideal. Um, but then if you go into the seventies and eighties, uh, the developers who began to develop downtowns and they learned that modernism was uh, was cheaper to build than traditionalism. And so uh, we became much more focused on cost than on beauty. The, the, the study that was done on American housing in the 30s or 40s, I've got that book somewhere, um, was fascinating study because basically they when they studied the home building industry in the 20s, um, they discovered that most home builders were small. They, uh, in size as a company, they built one to four houses a year. Uh, they were regionally localized, meaning they did, they built in their own city. They didn't really go into multiple cities. And they, uh, the biggest problem was that they crafted houses instead of building them in a production sense, mm. which is a fascinating comment that, and, and it's the reason why, you know, when I when I divide houses uh, and divide you know architecture, I say pre nineteen forty, post nineteen forty, because pre nineteen forty houses um, were typically crafted, typically have an architectural style. 
I mean, the ranch style of the 50s and 60s is really the last style of houses in America, right? You, you, we don't, we haven't invented a new style. Um, and th so things are either modern or contemporary, or they are, you know, these copies of English or, or, or European styles or colonial revival, and they're done very poorly. And so, um, yeah, it's a, it's a problem. Yeah. I think it's so fascinating that it really started to kick off around, um, that World War II mark. Cause that was so much in, in these other worlds that I, I dabble in the food and the agriculture, everything shifted right then. It, it's just like every single time, Oh, World War II or, you know, 1920s to World War II. It's like over and over and over again, just like our whole world changed so much. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. no doubt. So to play devil's advocate a little bit, because this is a question I get a lot with my lifestyle in, you know, the world I'm living in. People say to me frequently, well, that's nice, Jill, that you're you're living old-fashioned or you love traditional things, but it's just not realistic in the real world that we live in now. You know, it takes too long. It's not how we do things anymore. So I'm assuming people have said a, ver a version of that to you with your crafts. You know, Brent, we like this idea of, of pretty old houses, but hand tools and traditional building, it just doesn't work in the real world anymore. What would your response be to that? Um, yeah, I mean, what I'm, what I'm talking about and discussing are, are, are a ground shift in my industry. And, and, you know, I go to the International Building Show, which is our industry, you know, annual building show. And I don't like 90% of the products in there. Um, because they are made to snap in place. They are made to, they, everything looks the same. Um, everything is, is made to be installed faster. Um, everything is about this, this, uh, snap in place type of building. And, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I, uh, I suspect the argument that the arguments that you and I both make to our, you know, industry and to our customers is um, is the same argument that people made when we stopped writing letters and and we stopped doing things. Right? It's just you know, a handwritten letter is better, right, than than a text. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, and, and so it, it, we are holding on to um, uh, something that I think people admit is better, but may not be practical. And so I, I think we, we've become so conditioned in America to, um, to the Walmart, you know, focus and, and the microwave, you know, speed, um, you know, I mean, even for you and I, it's, 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 it's a, you know, acknowledged convenience that, that, you know, makes life faster or better or, or more convenient, but it's not better. I mean, if, if you look at just our culture, you know, and just, you know, it used to be said that if you wanted honest, honest citizens, right, you needed to build honest buildings. That if you wanted, you know, integrity in your, you know, in your community, then your buildings had to be, you know, have integrity. Uh, Winston Churchill said, first we shape our buildings, then they shape us. Mm. Right. And so, um, the, it's, it matters. And, and, People can say it doesn't, and I don't. I don't think people would argue that it doesn't matter. But but they but but the the comment that I get not is not practical, but it's too expensive. And so you know the the what I what I talk about as far as traditional building methods and things like that, um, 
they usually the usually the the throwback to me is well, no one can afford that, and I'm usually. You know, I, I say the same thing. This is where I use the food argument. Yeah, good food costs more than 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 a than a Twinkie, but um, it's also you'll you'll live longer. And so, um, you know, it's just it, we are trying to steer the battleship and 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 cause it to to change around. And it's the cultural, you know, tidal wave. It, it's hard to to battle against, but it matters. It's important, and. Um, I, you know, but I don't know how you get around it. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all of that. I think for me, it's often, you know, everyone wants to compare. Um, and, and sometimes I think in my early days, I was apt to try to rationalize what I was doing. Like, well, I, I can make cheese almost as fast as you can drive the store and buy it. And I can make bread almost as easily. And I'm like, no, no, that's, I'm missing the point. It's not about the easy. It's not about trying to be the same. It's about sinking into the difference, like you said. Yeah, it is different. It is slower. That's why we love it. And it is better because of those things. And maybe I think I'm always trying to fit it into compartments and you can't put them in the same compartment because they're not the same thing. Well, I think that uh, um, there's a there is a book written. I can't remember her name. Uh, and there's a lot of dystopian books written and, you know, uh, about, I think, I think there's a lot of people in our culture who recognize that, that this world is a lot of fakery and that we, we, um, our cars that we drive and and the speed of everything that we do, it could fall apart really quick. And, um, you know, what I think about in houses and, and she wrote a book called station 11. It was a, it was a national book award winner, uh, book. Um, and it was, she, she basically was describing that, that a disease had basically knocked us out, but, you know, and I think it was before COVID when she wrote it. And so, and you think about what COVID did to us, you know, how it just shut everything down. And so she writes that, you know, 80% of people are, are die and, you know, kind of how do we live? Well, she, and it may be for literary purposes that she has people living in McDonald's and, you know these, these buildings. But the truth is you can't live in those buildings. Okay. They require power in order to function in order to have fresh air. The only houses that are going to, you know, work in a, in a dystopian world are old houses, houses that have functioning windows and doors and that can move air and don't require the modern conveniences for us to survive. And so, um, I don't find, I, I think it's, uh, ironic and 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 sad a little bit when people want to throw out or, or tear down an old house, and really that's the only way we're going to make it long term. And I've got I'm on a thing called the Build Show with a lot of Build Science guys, and Build Science is the making the houses you know net zero and and, and energy free. They they require energy to function. They require um, you know that movement of air. Otherwise, they become you know a stale igloo environment. So anyway, it, it's it, it, what we're talking about in the life we're, we're describing and the, and the beauty and functionality and, you know, uh, you know, sustainability. I mean, my buildings are so much more sustainable than the Apple store buildings. Right. And so uh, they actually don't require, you know, uh, that kind of technology in order to function. The Apple store you know, people want to build the Apple store because it looks really cool, but it's a terrible thing for our environment. Environment. So, um, 
anyway, it's just, we're, we're, we're juggling all these, you know, conflicting, you know, ideals that, that are bad for us. And I think we're barking up the wrong tree. And, um, I think the simplicity that we're talking about that people live with, uh, really has value. Um, I think. Yeah. I, oh, I agree. Absolutely. Uh, so you mentioned sustainability a little bit. I wanted to touch on that. When, when we're talking about older construction or these older styles, are we looking at sustainability in terms of more that the materials are longer lasting? So you're not going to be, you know, they're not going to be breaking and ending up in landfills or being torn down as quickly? Or is it the materials themselves are made in an unsustainable way or, or maybe are bad for the environment? Or maybe is it is it both? It's both. It's, uh, you know, there, one of my complaints is, is that uh, on, you know, the people put ASAC, I don't know if you're familiar with you know, the PVC moldings or the ASEX or some of these other Trex decks and things like that. They're made of plastic. Mm-hmm. They're PVC based products. And so they are um, very well, they're long lasting. I'm going to say very long lasting. We haven't used them for long enough. Um, they're they're long lasting materials. Um, concrete siding, you know, the, the hardy siding and things like that. Those are um, products that have been invented because we've forgotten how to pitch a windowsill so that it doesn't hold water. And we are practicing you know, there's things that were done in the past. We've just come out with this thing called a hundred year window. And what was happening is we were putting production windows in jobs, Marvin Pella, Colby windows in jobs. And they were, they, I mean, high end jobs. I mean, our clients are, are wealthy clients. They, uh, and they were rotting out in, you know, 15, 17, 18 years and literally falling out of this, the, the hole. Um, and at the same time, our restoration business was restoring courthouses and depots and other things. And we had these windows that we were taking out of buildings and restoring and putting back in, expecting them to last another 50 to 100 years. And then we we're like, wait a minute, what's going on? Why can't we have new windows that last a long time? Um, we know we know they did. And so we are building, you know, our window to match historic standards. We're using good wood. And good wood is, is to your point, is 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 huge. If you do um, the life cycle cost of our windows versus a production window, I mean, it's you know, it's it's uh, multiples of X better as far as uh, the the re, the redo. And so when you get into sustainability, right, the fact that you're putting a product in that won't need to be replaced every ten or fifteen years. Um, really adds up and really does make, you know, things sustainable, long lasting. It's better materials. It's building things so that they shed water so that they don't rot themselves out. And so anyway, it's, it's a lot of things like that. We've forgotten how to craft so that things last. And so we make these fake products so that things will last, but we're still building them poorly. So yes, yes. Uh, my husband has been in the construction world for a long time, and he's—he I hear him say many of the things that you're saying, complaining about. Yeah, every time we start a new project, he's like, this was built so poorly. Oh, my gosh. It's so bad. So I'm interrupting this episode for just a second to give you a very important canning lid update. Because, well, people like you and me care about these things. Some of you may remember back in 2020 that I did a video that ended up going viral all about reusable canning lids. 
They were a great option for that season when you basically couldn't find metal lids in stores. It was a huge problem. There was a lot of drama about it. And this type of reusable lid worked pretty good. They had a slightly higher rate of failure, but they were a great option uh, versus like just not canning at all. However, I recently heard from that company and because of supply chain shortages, they've had to move over to disposable gaskets. And so because of that, I've been looking for a different option. Now, last fall, when I was at a homesteading conference, I met the owners of a brand new company and they gave me some lids to try, but I was hesitant to tell you about them until I had a chance to put the lids to use and see how they really worked. However, eight months in, I've been using these lids exclusively and I am so impressed. The name of the company is Four Jars and basically they just kind of check all the boxes for me. These lids seal beautifully. They are heavy duty. You can purchase them in bulk for a discount. They have free shipping options and they're a small family owned company that really cares about their product and their customers. So I am so happy to be using these lids now. And if you'd like to give them a try, you can head on over to theprairiehomestead.com slash four jars. Use code PURPOSE10 to get a discount. And I'll drop all that info down in the show notes. So now back to our episode. So I'm thinking of the people listening to this episode. And you know, I, I know I have some listeners in very old houses, some listeners building houses, some listeners who are probably in track homes who are, you know, maybe in a a subdivision in an HOA, and they're trying to figure out how to live a more old fashioned life with what they got. So I'd love to kind of shift to that practical world to give them some ideas that they can take and run with. So I guess maybe my first question along those lines would be, if someone is uh, shopping for a home right now or a property, which is tricky, I know, because the the real estate market, all I hear from folks is it's, you know, hard and tricky and outrageous, but right now, but Maybe it'll change in the near future. But anyway, if they're trying to weigh, you know, should they go with an older home and maybe help restore it or renovate it? Or should they go for a new home? And I think the new one is attractive because, you know, turnkey, you just walk in and get rolling. What would your advice be for them? Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't buy a house built after 1970. And so, um, I live, I live in a, a 1962 ranch house and I think the ranch period is the last period of, of decent building with real products and real materials. <clears throat> if you knew how they were building track houses, if you knew the sheathing and the other products that they're putting on those things, you wouldn't buy them. Um, they are incredibly poorly built. And so, um, you know, they are built to be disposable. And so I wouldn't, you know, I would never buy a house after 1970. Um, I would, uh, you know, if, if I had, you know, half a million dollars, $400,000 right now to go buy a house, I would go buy an old house. Why? Well, you actually get moldings, yeah. right? You get solid wood moldings in your house. You get solid wood floors. Um, the off-gassing and some of the other materials, the MDF and the other things that they're going to use in a new house are bad for you, that you are not going to be, you know, healthy. And so um, I understand I can do that because I know how to repair a door handle that's loose or whatever the thing is that's going to drive someone crazy. Um, but uh, I'm just telling you that, that that new build 
is so bad, um, you don't want to live there. And so, uh, and then I think people would say, well, you know, I'm only going to be in it three to five years. Okay, well, that's fine. It's your money. I'm, I'm not sure it, it you know, it, it, it's going to hold its value, but they, you know, um, I'm just, yeah, you asked the question. Yeah. I, I, I'm buying an old house um, because I know the windows, I can get the windows to operate. I know I can get it to breathe. I'm going to have more windows. I'm going to have things that make sense. I'm going to have things that actually are, are driven by design philosophy and are beautiful. And there's going to be a style that I can work towards. Um, and so for all those reasons, quality of material, design, you know, functionality, you know, I'm buying an old house. Yeah, same. I've often said if we if I won the lottery tomorrow I wouldn't I'd go buy old versus build new just with how I'm wired. Um, yeah. For someone who's looking at older homes, I think the fear is always, oh, what if I get the one that you know is the foundation ends up being bad, or like what what are the deal breakers that they should be looking for? Um, if that maybe they're not you know as handy in construction as you are, maybe they're a little more limited in, in their skills and, and their budget. What would you say would be the things that would be like? the big things to watch for so they don't get in over their head well i mean foundation and roof you know you got to manage water okay and so uh if you're not managing water you're going to have rot you're going to have you know decay and you know water is the enemy okay and so um if you have if it has a bad foundation um and or the roof isn't in good shape uh then those that's that's the big one um, in Texas, we have in North Texas, I should say, we have expansive soil, which we have a lot of clay in our soil. So when it rains and it dries out, our, our soils move a lot. So foundation doesn't mean that there's some shifting. <laughs> At least it doesn't mean that in our market. Foundation would have to be detrimental, you know, cr- big cracks in your foundation wall, things like that, major heaves. Um, and so you know, th- that would be the first thing I'm looking for. I think that you are, you know, me personally, I would want a house that is as original as possible. Okay. I don't want an old house that someone's flipped because it means they've probably taken out the original cabinets. They've changed the windows. They've, they've done all the stupid things that they think are good decisions that I think take all the value out of that house. So I'm going to want a house that's really original, has the original hardware, has the original cabinets you know, has the original tile in the bathrooms, you know, the floors are in good shape. Um, and so, you know, that's the second piece I'm looking for. And then, uh, you know, I, I suspect there is a uh, beauty attraction piece here too, that's going to be, it's just so charming. It just draws you in. And when you love something, you end up taking care of it better than uh, when you don't. And so th- those are the things I'm looking yeah. for. Good advice. Um, so uh, for those who are, you know, they're in a home right now, they're not looking to buy. Maybe they're either renovating an older home. Maybe they have a house, like you said, that, that they have someone has flipped. I know we have our, our home was built 1914, 1918, I think. Um, but we bought it many years ago before we, we kind of developed our own awareness and it had been redone. And it was a small, stucco little prairie house to begin with. So I don't think there was loads of character, but the gentleman who had it before us absolutely removed any character that was there, you know, and it was white sheetrock and burr carpets and oak cabinets and just, you know, the whole nine yards. And so over the years, it's been a process of I'm trying to bring character back into the home. 
And I'm trying to imagine what it would have been like. And it's not a Victorian. It's not a craftsman, right? It's a stucco prairie house. But I'm trying to like imagine what it, the house wants to be. And so I know there are many different styles and you ha- you want to respect the style of the house. But could you give us some principles um, from like this timeless construction that maybe we might not realize that is appealing to our eyes that we do f- that we do find beautiful and how we can start to bring some of those feels and um, th- that sense back into our homes? Well, I think the, the, the easy button is architectural salvage. Um, I think that, uh, finding good architectural salvage, uh, <laughs> can be transformational. Um, the, uh, <coughs> the, uh, whether that be a mantle, whether that be a stair handrail, whether that be doors, whether that be hardware, we've done, and, and in a lot of our new houses that we're building, uh, architectural salvage is a big part of what we're doing. Um, we're taking, you know, antique, uh, French mantles. We're taking, uh, uh, you know, I, I think we did a Louisiana, a Hayes town. who was an architect did, uh, in Louisiana. We actually went to an architectural salvage yard in Louisiana and bought Cypress doors to put into their house because, and used antique hardware on this new house. And, um, so architectural salvage is huge. I think that there, there is too, um, a philosophy, a design philosophy that's part of, you know, any new house, any consulting I do, I'm talking about, I'm, I'm talking to people about building a narrative. Like, like, why was this house built? When was this house built? You know, who built it? Um, so that we can, you know, infuse those products into it and so that it makes sense. I mean, if you think about, the, the the philosophy of building in the in the Victorian era, right, was was almost McMansiony um, with good craftsmanship, mm-hmm. right, and so it was showy. It was uh, newfangled products. It was uh, um, a lot of a lot of manufactured and industrial products, and so th- there was a the, the bright colors, the ornamentation are all part of the story of that style of house. And the arts and crafts period, which followed it, is is exact opposite, right? It was a rejection of that ornamentation. So it was simplicity, uh, no fake ornamentation, uh, any kind of brackets or anything need to be functional. Um, and so you go inside and the moldings were, you know, you know, uh, stained oftentimes because you wanted the natural beauty of the wood to come through. They weren't, you know, heavily, uh, you know, moldings were flat and plain. And so you, you, all of those parts and pieces that go into both of those styles, like if you had a, a window pull uh, on a Victorian house, it's going to be ornamented. All that little, the little piece of everything's going to be ornamented. The hinges were ornamented. Um, whereas you go to the arts and crafts, and it's very plain and simple. So there's, I, I would, you know, to understand the history, the narrative, the philosophy of what what your house is, is really important to putting the right furniture in there, picking the right ma- mantle. You know, choosing the right moldies, the, the kitchen. Um, you know, we're helping people redo kitchens in historic houses. And if you go to the cabinet store today, <laughs> you will not see an historic kitchen in there. And so you really have to uh, look at the historic pattern books, look at the historic catalogs. And the very first book I, I bought to build my library um, is... Uh, I went into an architectural salvage yard near us, old home supply, and said, Hey, Ralph, 
if I'm a carpenter in 1920, what book am I using to pick out moldies, pick out stairs? Mm-hmm. Pick, what would I have ordered from? And he handed me this book, the Universal Design Book, 1927. Um, and it had stairs and moldings and, and cabinets and it showed you everything that was available at that time. That became, became our tool. Okay. And the first book I wrote, I stored Millwork. Um, was a collection of catalogs from 1870, 1880 into 1940, helping people look at what would have been available, what would have been done at that time. So long answer, architectural salvage, but then you're also using those design philosophies to help you pick the right hardware, pick the right moldings, um, you know, make those decisions. Yeah, that's great advice. I love the the narrative piece because I know early on in my journey with my house, I, I kept thinking, well, I want it to be old fashioned. And so I got really distracted on, is it Victorian? And I would bring a little piece in of that. And then I'd be like, is it, is it more craftsman? And then I'd bring in that and then I'd bring in more European and I'm like, stop, like, it can't be all the things I have to pick, like you said, pick a narrative and let the house, you know, lead the way. And so that was, it feels like common sense, but I feel like it's often not common sense that I think we get distracted, especially with. Uh, I don't think, I don't mean people do it. And and in fact, when we, we built a Pennsylvania farmhouse and uh, for some people and we went to the, to the point of, okay, it was a farmhouse. When was it built? Cause if it was built in 1820, it's going to look very different than if it was built in 1890. All right. Who built it? Did the farmer build it or did he have fine masons that came in and helped him do things? So that, that told us the kind of stonework, the kind of what the windows looked like that told us, you know, how ornamented the woodwork was inside that, you know, and then we ended up having a, you know, the garage was the original barn. So it was a big structure, yeah, but we wanted it to look like an original barn, even though it's going to function as a garage. And then the first part of the house, you know, was added onto and the kitchen was a 1940s kitchen. And so what did that look like? And so when you walk through that house, it feels very much like you're in a different time and place and it has that charm of being, uh, you can almost, you know, hear and and understand the story of the original people that lived there because you had, you know, so many different elements going on there. Our ceiling in the kitchen was a beadboard ceiling, Mm -hmm. right? We didn't want sheetrock in there. In fact, we had very little sheetrock in that house. And so anyway, it was all those kind of things that, that, that narrative. And I, and I would encourage your listeners to really chase down that narrative. Don't just say, you know, it's an 1870s farmhouse. Okay, well, who built it? Yeah. You know, how far were you from, you know, a major city? Uh, you know, was, was the farmer a craftsman at all? You know, was it a kit, right? Well, you know, how did he do it? You know, what did, you know, and, and you know, that then ends up defining, did he have any money, right? You know, what kind of materials go into your house? And you can really, you know, begin to, you know, create a fun yeah. story. It's brilliant. And I think so many of those pieces, I know for me, when I walk into a home that just has like nailed it, it's like, I, it's not even the obvious things. It's just those little pieces of how the, the, the molding and the doorknobs that it just gives you the feeling and you don't even know why, but it just feels right. And I love it when that happens. I love it when yeah. that happens. We call it layering that I want, I want someone who uh, visits this house and it, and it comes the fifth time and sees something new yes. each time. Right. And go, oh, I never noticed they did that. And right. That you've that you've tucked in these details so uh, seamlessly, but and subtly, but it but it works and it, and you you appreciate it. But the fifth time you come back, you're like, I never noticed they did that. That's yes. really fun. So that's that's what yes, I love. Me, too. 
Do you have any advice for kitchens? Because that's the one that I always, I see a lot of older homes struggle with. You know, when I, when I look at pictures of kitchen from the era that my house was in, they were, uh, is it called unfitted? Like they didn't have appliances, obviously, and there were no upper cabinets. And it was very much like movable workstations and benches. And I love the look of them. But then I feel very frustrated because I have a refrigerator and a dishwasher. And I'm like, how do I, how do I blend the new and the old? Do you have any advice for folks in the kitchen area? Yeah. Um, the reason why your kitchen in 1914 looks like that, uh, or 1918, hell yeah, hang on. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to, to walk no out of your screen there. The, uh, this book, if people can find it, the kitchen plan ooh, book, ooh, ooh. it's, uh, it was, it was 19, I think 20. Um, it was a, it was a, uh, um, it was a juried event that basically they have, you know, these kitchens and what they look like. And the, the, the whole idea of the kitchen in 19, from 1900 to about 1925, 1935 was that the kitchen was a workspace and it had to be small because it had to be efficient. It had to be, you know, they, they do they do time studies of and and the step studies of where people were walking and how they how they function in this kitchen. It was it was a they were saying it's as important as a workshop, right? Is it, that that you have is very efficient. So that's the reason why kitchens and bungalows are oftentimes small. We oftentimes will bump into that you know that breakfast area that's often attached to it, and so and and open it up so that I can you know, grow into the family room or grow into more of a public space and it's not corned off. Um, the most important thing to do is get the cabinets mm -hmm. right. If you, because the cabinets will cover, let's just say in those original kitchens, you didn't have any upper cabinets, right? And those original kitchens might have a, uh, you know, Hoosier cabinet for baking bread and making things. They might have a, uh, a freestanding grill, um, you know, oven stove range thing. And then they have one wall of cabinets sink under a window and maybe cabinets above, but definitely, you know, you know, that that's a very typical kitchen. Even if you fill that kitchen with, with line it out with cabinets, if you can get the cabinets right. Okay. Then it can sell it because what you don't want to do is you don't want to walk into a 1920s house and then you know, all this charming things, the, the moldies and everything's right. And then you walk into the kitchen and you're at an Ikea store. And so the, the, the getting the kitchen, the cabinets right is, you know, it's a flat, flat panel. It's an inset cabinet door. It's not a, it's not an overlay cabinet door. It's cabinets that go all the way to the ceiling. It's usually small cabinets at the top of the ceiling line. It's some, um, some kind of uh, glass or divided light in some of the lower things. Um, and, and it's a simple cabinet, but if you look at, you know, a molding catalog from the 1920s and, and the reprints are available, um, it'll tell you the door style. It'll tell you what the, what, the, what the different pieces look like. And we have taken those historic kitchen spaces, you know, filled them up with cabinets. And when you get the cabinets right, you can put in all the original appliances. You can put in whatever sink you want. You can put in whatever countertop you want. Uh, because you've gotten most of it right, um, those other things will fit in there. And they, they, I think they fit in very nicely. Yeah. Okay. Great advice. Yeah. I do, I do totally see how the cabinets would be so crucial. Um, 100%. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. They just take up so much wall space that you, you know, you get those right. You've got 80% of your kitchen, right? And so you can, it gives you leeway to do other sure. things. Okay. Great. Great. Advice. And then if, then if you do like a, you know, a wood countertop, then if you did the, the backsplash, if you did some of those other period things, it just, you know, makes it even better. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's been the, the balance for me is because I use my kitchen a lot. I'm cooking a ton. So I'm like, some of the pieces that I love from the old photographs maybe aren't as functional, right? I, like I've even I've even toyed with the idea of putting my refrigerator downstairs because I just hate the look of the refrigerator. My husband's like, you're not going to want to go down, up and down the stairs. Come on. But I'm like, but it's worth it. So, you know, I have to balance the functionality. But like you said, I think if you get, if you get that 80% nailed, then you have a little more maybe freedom. Yeah. And, and when I first started, it was so hard to find subway mm-hmm. tiles. You know, it was so hard to find, you know, cross-handle uh, plumbing fixtures. Those things are much easier to find now. And so, um, you know, that are brand new, that look that look yeah. really good, that I, I think you can get it right. The fact that you can cover dishwashers and kitchen and, uh, you know, refrigerator freezers in panels, you know, that you can panelize so many of those things. And, and there's companies like, I think, Elmira Stove, they actually make, new old stoves and refrigerators. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, the, uh, there's a lot of better things that when I, when I was first starting, it was really hard to get those things right. Yeah. I have seen more pop in the market, which is promising. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It is. Just a fun question. What's your favorite of all the styles that you would dabble in and you know, and you're knowledgeable and what's your favorite personally? Um, I, it's like, it's like an ice cream question. What's what's your favorite (laughs) ice cream? You know, they're They're all all good. good. What are you kidding me? Um, the, uh, I mean, I probably most attracted to, uh, a Greek revival style. I think it's very American. I think it's, uh, simple. I think it's, uh, um, strong. I think that it's, uh, um, I, I think I'm just, I'm attracted to that. Um, I think it can be contemporary, it can be historic, and it can be, uh, it's very adaptable. Um, so I, I think a good Greek revival, I think, is, is, is a great style. But I mean, I love it when the English revival styles are done well. I love a good colonial revival. Um, so, yeah, I like, uh, I like a lot of different styles. Yeah, awesome. We have, we actually have an old soda fountain that we own, and people always ask me, what's the favorite milkshake? I'm like, I don't know. Don't ask me that. <laughs> it depends on my mood. So I, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah uh, it's the yes, same thing. Yes. All right. As we're coming up on time here, please let us know how everyone can find you. I know you have the book. I know the book that you have several books, but the one that was really sticking out to me was creating a timeless home in an instant age. Did I say that properly? The title? Okay. Yeah. Building an instant, ha- uh, timeless house instant in an instant Yeah, that age. sounds so and, good. And that, but that may be easiest to find by, uh, um, by emailing us, uh, info at brinhull.com. We've got copies here if you can't get it. I th- at one point, it was on Amazon for like $800. Oh, it was goodness. like, ah, no, you, yeah. Yeah, you can okay. get it here. Um, eBay, you can get them there too. The, uh, um, if you just go to brinhull.com, you'll see all our stuff. Uh, uh, and our different companies and, you know, uh, all the stuff we're doing. I have a YouTube channel, Brent Hull on YouTube. I, uh, uh, and I have a lot of old house stuff there, restoring windows, um, you know, just fixing up old houses, how to think about old houses, uh, how to repair things. And so there's, there's things there that people can, 
watch and and you know figure stuff out. Yes, that was poking around your YouTube channel, and it's it's got some amazing resources. So everyone, go check out the YouTube, grab the book, um, check out the website. Brent, thank you so much for this. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um, just was a pleasure to chat. So thanks for sharing your wisdom with us. Jill, thanks so much. Pleasure being here.